brings us to Lord's Day 7, questions 20 through 23. What we're looking at here now is the extent of Christ and his salvation and where it reaches. In question 20, the question is, are all men then saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam? So the question here is, it's reaching in this area where, okay, so since we are all in Adam, we are all descendants of Adam, and at birth we are in Adam. So now by the one death of Christ, is everybody saved? So everybody is condemned in Adam, and now that Christ has died on the cross, does that not now mean that everybody is now saved? In him and the answer is no only those are saved who by true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all of his benefits so what this is doing it's refuting the universalist idea that all people eventually go to heaven so through Adam's sin we all fell so logically then through the death of Christ we're all saved this is universal type thinking and it's not correct. Jesus specifically warns us about this type of thinking. Matthew chapter 7, 13 through 14, where he says, Enter in by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So what this ultimately means is hell is not an enjoyable topic for anybody to talk about. So most preachers today, I would say at least four out of every five times, four times to five uh, to one, in the sense that a preacher will preach on heaven four times to every one time they preach on hell. And anytime I've noticed when I look at an obituary online or if I read an obituary in the paper, everybody goes to heaven. And I've heard it said by many people in the past, people who are not particularly religious, people who do not really associate themselves much with the Christian faith, they say something like this. They say that Jesus died for everybody. This means everybody's sins are forgiven. He is the Savior. He saved everybody. Therefore, we all go to heaven. The reality is, according to Scripture, this simply isn't true. The Bible doesn't teach this. The Bible teaches that all unbelieving and all repented people die in their sins. This means that a large amount of people are not saved when they die. I don't know how many times as a hospital chaplain, did I meet a person on their deathbed and they would look at my name tag and it would say chaplain so they would know who I am. Right away they would say, look, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. I believe in God or I've been a good person or I feel close to God when I walk through nature or walk through the woods. This is not repentance. This is not faith and belief in Christ. This is not acknowledging Christ as both Savior and Lord. Being spiritual, however you define that, will not save you. So the sad reality is, is everybody doesn't go to heaven. 
Christ's death does not automatically mean that every single person goes to heaven when they die. So for this reason, many faith traditions, including some churches, discard the reality of hell altogether. It's just too difficult of a topic for people to swallow. These denominations or these faith traditions teach that in the end we all end up there. And that if hell does even exist, it's for really bad people, such as Stalin and Hitler, serial killers. Hell is just too hard of a concept for people to come to terms with. So human nature finds a way to rationalize this, to rationalize the judgment and the wrath of God away. And they say that those who die in their sins will find themselves in hell for all eternity. That is hatred. That is not the love of Christ. Christ came to die for all people. So this universalist type thinking comes by the way of having such a difficult time grasping the reality of hell and God's judgment. So it is eternally impossible for an individual who finds themselves in hell to retrace their steps back. There's no way out. They cannot be restored, nor will the person in hell want to be restored. This is where we really have to understand the depravity and the level of sin and hatred for God that each natural person has. The person in hell, God has removed their restraint, the restraint of his common grace. The person in hell is now left completely in their hatred for God and their suffering. So there's no longer God's common grace restraint on the individual. They are now 100% fully expressing their anger and hatred towards God. This is the type of attitude that sends us to hell, unrepentance. We have it here on earth. Each individual born is an enemy of God, but God's common grace restrains their sin. In hell, that common grace restraint is removed. And the full sinfulness of the human nature comes out. So we are far from innocent on this earth. We have to ask ourselves, which one of these is more important? So as Christians, as believers, as we are witnessing, as we're evangelizing, which one of these are more important? Telling somebody the truth about hell or being concerned with how they will respond or how it will affect your relationship so you withhold it. This may be the most single difficult question, the single difficult subject to discuss. We all have that friend. We all have that loved one. We all have that relative or that co-worker that's not a believer, that does not profess faith in Christ. They have their idea, they're a concept of God. In some ways, it aligns up with God in the Bible. In some ways, it doesn't. But they may not believe that hell is a reality. They may not believe that they have to repent. They may not think anything like that. But that's what the Bible teaches. And if we are to evangelize, these are the truths that we have to proclaim. So what are we going to do? For the sake of peace and for the sake of friendship, are we going to withhold this? Or are we going to tell the person what they need to hear? We've heard this time and time again. Acts 20, verse 26 and 27. Paul says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. 
for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul is saying here, he is innocent. He's innocent of the blood of everybody. And why is that? Because he did not shrink to declare the whole counsel of God. It is our obligation. It is our duty. It is our responsibility as Christians. When we evangelize, when we preach, when we teach, when we share the gospel, that we are sharing the entire gospel. The parts where people like and the parts that people don't like. We don't want to be this person that stands before God someday and is not innocent of the blood of all because we were too timid, we were too afraid of sharing the entire truth. Now, this does not mean we go in with guns blazing and blast people over the head with the reality of hell. We do this in wisdom. We are balanced in our approach between law and gospel. But we have to be careful that we are not hiding this or withholding this reality from the individual that we're sharing the gospel with. This is why we have to be balanced in our approach, both law and gospel. Yes, hell is a reality. And no, Jesus' death on the cross does not automatically mean people go to heaven. This is the negative result of sin. But we also must preach the positive side of God's grace. His entire counsel, both good and bad. So when we're looking at the concept of what Lord's Day 7 is talking about here, true faith in Christ is the only thing that can save someone. God requires all people everywhere to repent. Every human being has the mandatory responsibility to repent of their sins and to turn to Christ for their salvation. True faith is what accomplishes this. The result of true faith is the individual being grafted into Christ himself. The person has now accepted all the benefits that Christ has to offer. So now going over to question 21, it asks, what is true faith? And here's the answer. True faith, a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith, the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel. So this is what we would say is the positive side of the coin, the nature of true faith. Okay, so we understand hell is real. We understand God's judgment and wrath are real. We understand that people go to hell who are unrepentant and for and refuse to repent and confess and to believe. That's the negative side. Here's the positive side. We're going to talk about true faith. So how do we communicate this to others? So what we're going to do is break down that answer that we just read of true faith into several subcategories, breaking this apart. How do we express, how do we communicate what true faith is to people who are unbelievers? First thing the Catechism says, is true faith is a sure knowledge. True faith is not just consent, meaning you believe, but not to the point of being saved. 
True faith always results into salvation. Neither is true faith simply having faith in faith. It is not simply taking a blind leap into the dark, hoping that the Lord will catch you. True faith is based upon true knowledge. It is a knowledge that is real. It is a knowledge that is relevant. And it is knowledge that is trustworthy. So let's take a look here at two verses that express this. 2 Peter 1.20, where Peter says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. You hear this a lot. People claim the Bible was written by men. Therefore, it's just man's opinion. Not true. No prophecy or no part of the word of God was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the reason we have scripture is because the Holy Spirit inspired the words, moved the author, and regenerated the heart of the author to be able to hear, listen, and express what the Holy Spirit is speaking to his people. So, this being said, true faith is based upon true knowledge directly from God himself. And 2 Peter 1.16 says, For we, Peter referring to the apostles, did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So what we're seeing here is these aren't myths. These aren't simply fables. This isn't simply just medieval superstition. What we're seeing here in the word of God, especially when we're looking into the New Testament and the old with the prophets, is eyewitness accounts of what has been written. This isn't just hearsay. This isn't just the telephone game of one person saying one thing to another. These were the eyewitnesses of Jesus himself. They walked with him through his ministry. They were there in the crucifixion, even though very few people, very few of his disciples were actually followed through to that point. But they were eyewitnesses of his resurrection. And they spoke with him for the 40 days before he ascended into heaven. They were eyewitnesses of all of these things. So we have a sure knowledge from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the eyewitness testimony of the apostles that everything in Scripture is true. The Bible is not based on myth. It is not based upon fables or superstitions. Rather, it's based upon eyewitness testimony from those who were there through the Holy Spirit who inspired them and moved the authors to write as they did. So that's the first point. True saving faith is a sure knowledge. Now, second whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. So it's going from the knowledge to the acceptance of that knowledge in a person's heart. And you may wonder how this is even possible. At times, we lack faith in the saving power of the Holy Spirit. We ask ourselves, how can we expect a person to all of a sudden accept as true all that God has revealed in his word. We look at people with such hardened hearts. We look at people who think there is no way possible anybody is going to believe this. How can we expect this? This is our lack of faith in the Holy Spirit, not realizing that at one time, at one point, we were that person who didn't believe. Now we are the ones who believe. And an example of this is C.S. Lewis, former agnostic, who was opposed in every way he could be to the gospel of Christ, he turned out to be a believer. And he said, the Lord opened the gates of salvation to a person 
who was kicking, struggling, resentful, and looking for any way to escape God's calling. This is C.S. Lewis's quote about himself. Somebody who was so opposed to God, but regardless, the transforming work of the Holy Spirit penetrated through that hardness of heart, took that heart of stone out, replaced it with a heart of flesh. How does the Lord do this to a person? We see in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is a supernatural act. It is the Holy Spirit who accomplishes this task in the heart of the person. He supernaturally makes his words known to the individual. It comes by way of hearing the word of God preached, as we see in Romans 10, 17. So faith, referring to true faith, comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So our job as believers is to simply preach and communicate this gospel. And it is the Holy Spirit who penetrates the heart of the individual. Point three, the catechism continues in its answer to true faith. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace. So we see here, Paul gives us a description of what we have a firm confidence in regarding our salvation. can pick many verses here. Here's just one, Romans 5.1. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and here he's referring to true faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the confidence that we have, that God has forgiven us of our sins. Now we have peace. Not because of anything that we have done. Not because we have been good for a period of time and now we're in God's good graces. It is because of the finished work of Christ as we will see that we have peace. God has brought us. He has united us to himself. We have peace with him. We see another example of this, Acts 10, 44-46, the household of Cornelius. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. This is the supernatural act of the Holy Spirit. This is how God grants forgiveness and everlasting righteousness by his grace. The Holy Spirit comes upon a person pierces that heart and transforms it, gives them a new heart of flesh. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that our salvation is out of mere grace. For by grace you have been saved, referring to true faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Paul also says in Philippians 1, 29 that our faith has been granted to us by God. He says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, referring to true faith, but also suffer for his sake. So the reason we believe is because God has granted us this blessing out of his grace. 
So this is how we have the confidence. This is how the Holy Spirit transforms our heart. It's a work of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Point four in the answer. Only for the sake of Christ's merits. Now we can make an entire study just on this alone. But just to simplify what we're seeing here. When the Lord saves us. We now stand in his righteousness. It's positional. Before our salvation, we were standing in our own righteousness, which is no righteousness at all. We are in debt to God beyond what we can comprehend. But after we have been saved, the Lord has now repositioned us. We are now standing in the very finished work of Christ himself. We receive the righteousness of Christ. He receives our past, present, and future sins. We receive his righteousness. When God looks down from heaven upon a believer, he sees the finished work of Christ. It is Christ's meritorious work on the cross that saves a sinner and nothing else. And this is the position where we now stand, now that we have been united to Christ through faith. And fifth, this faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. As Romans 5, 5 tells us, God's love has been poured in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So the negative, not everyone is saved through Christ's death. The majority of people die in their sins and spend eternity in hell. This is their choice. This is what they want. This is a difficult subject to discuss but we must be faithful to the whole counsel of God. And this negative side gets balanced out with the positive when we see true faith that is required for all people. This is where we open up the gospel story. This is where we focus on Christ's meritorious work, the gift of faith. Salvation is attainable by grace through faith, referring to the true faith mentioned here in the question. Not by works but only through Christ's merit alone. Which brings us to question 22. What then must a Christian believe? The answer here is all that is promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in summary. So when it refers to Catholic here, it's referring to the universal doctrine of the Orthodox Church, what we have stood for since the first century. And this has been required of us by way of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, and John 20, 31, that we are preaching the gospel to all people. So this, what the Christian must believe, has been summarized for us in question 23. What are these articles? And what we see here in question 23 are the articles of the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is what we're going to be taking in-depth look at next. The Catechism just mentions it here, and from this point forward, we'll be taking a look at what the Apostles' Creed says about the orthodoxy of the Christian faith.